I got three pieces of good news. Number one, this is the last one of these of the day, all right? So for those that have been here for, or have put in a full day, congratulations. Uh, good news number two, we have Jonathan Bush here of Athena Health, and uh, those that know him know that he's shy and demure and really doesn't like to talk, but we're plying him with um, over-caffeinated uh, beverages, and he promises he'll try his hardest to uh, say a few pithy things. And then number three is... Did you, did you say pissy things? Yes, exactly. Okay. Number three is the, the title of this panel is The Cost to Zero Moonshot. And so we're sitting here in Silicon Valley. It's Silicon Valley because the peninsula annexed San Francisco a bunch of years ago. This used to just be a bedroom community for people commuting down. Now the commute is terrible in every direction. But uh, Silicon Valley, if exist if only to drive the cost to zero of everything. In 1970, Intel uh, introduced a chip, the 3101. It was a 64-bit memory chip and it cost 40 bucks. So about a buck a bit, okay? Ten years ago this week, as you know, uh, Apple came out with the iPhone. They didn't call it the iPhone 1 or 0, it was just the iPhone. And uh, I don't even remember how much memory was in it. It, it, it wasn't very much. And if you looked at it today, it's kind of chintzy compared to what we have in our pockets today. But uh, even, even Steve Jobs, in, in describing it on the introduction, if you go rewatch that introduction, he talks about it was like going to the moon, like the, the development project was like going to the moon. So we drive the cost down. And so the big question is, is can that happen in healthcare? like it's happened in every other, not yet every other, but many other businesses from phone calls to photos to search to all these things that are basically free. And healthcare should be free or heading towards free. So let's start with this, a um, little word association. When I hear moonshot, I think large amounts of government money and you get Velcro and Tang. How about you? <laughs> yes, that's perfect, right? It's, it starts with this childlike idea that we'll just do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm gonna, la, 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 I want it, I want it. As opposed to letting markets and processes emerge over time. It's like, no, we need it now, we need it now. And if it's the Manhattan Project or maybe the moon in a scared world, uh, maybe it's worth an incredibly inefficient, you know, uh, blast that creates all kinds of horrible unintended consequences and all kinds of wonderful accidental positive consequences. Maybe just the stirring of the pot of a moonshot, a collective tribal chest thump occasionally by governments and societies are a good idea, but they certainly aren't grown-up practical ways of, you know, building sustainable solutions to problems. Right. Um, so, yeah, Tang, Velcro, you know, uh, I mean, Obamacare is similar, like it's sort of a moonshot that's created this room, you know, I mean, pretty much everything that Obamacare set out to do, it didn't do, it did it completely in reverse, the last rate increase was an average of 22%, but before Obamacare, none of us were here, there were no digital health companies. In 2008, there was less than $800 million of venture capital that went into healthcare IT companies, because it was a food desert. You know, you were either Epic or Cerner or at the time McKesson, you know, and, and, and none of them could connect to you. So it was sort of like, you need not apply. Uh, so yeah, lots of marvelous unintended consequences along with the, you know, childlike top-down uh, Keynesian crap. So that begs the question. <laughs> we're going through all the uh, 
bodily functions. Free association, um, let's go. Keynesian crap, top down. Yeah. At healthcare conferences, you're allowed to go through bodily functions. Um, so, so how do you bend the cost curve? I mean, there's so many industries where technology, whether it was, whether it was silicon or algorithms or whatever, have, have driven the cost closer and closer to zero until things completely change. How do we do that in healthcare? I mean, right. just is it, is it doctors? Is it medical devices? Is it pharma? Is it right. something else? I mean, as I look at those things, they don't scale. Right. And so how in right. your mind... So if you can't, sort of, if, 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 if brilliant Barack can't bring the people from Harvard down to moonshot the cost to zero, which we tried and obviously went the other way quite a lot, what does, you know, what does create that surprising disappear? And why isn't it in healthcare, right? And what I love about healthcare, among many things, is the ironies, right? That, you know, it's the thing we care about the most. It's got both visceral and financial, you know, elements to it that are marvelous. And yet we suck at it more than anything else. Like we do porn so much better than healthcare. And who cares about porn? It's so endlessly pointless. You know, that is wildly exciting and frustrating at the same time. I think the thing that makes healthcare not drop to zero is that normally... Uh, new technologies are, are, are drawing people on to new demand curves. They're not, there's non-adoption, and then there's the kooks, the crazy ones to your Apple, you know. And then over time, the crazy ones are kind of liking it, and all of a sudden, the mainstream of us climb on board. But we're comfortable as a society with non-adoption of that crazy new thing forever, if necessary. None of us, very few of us, are comfortable with non-adoption of healthcare by someone who's desperate for it and who's dying. And so by virtue of our superego and our caring, we raise the floor of acceptable non-adoption to where non-adoption is virtually illegal. And then there's no demand curve. Then there's no benefit to a new way of doing things because you're not bringing anybody new into the market because everybody's forced to be in the market already, right? So the, the game we're all trying to figure out is how can we create, you know, a sufficient safety net that we don't hate ourselves in the morning every night wondering what might happen to our fellow Americans, but enough distance uh, between that safety net and something else that there's an adoption incentive. That there's, hey, I'll do the hip better and cheaper and I'll actually get more. Today, our clients raise their price and they don't lose any market share. And if they lower their price, they don't gain any market share. There are really big problems to that. If they do it better, they don't gain any market share. And if they do it worse, they don't lose any. That's fucked up. So, you know, the big game is how do we insert into, and I think, you know, in this next sort of class of our, of our lives as, as healthcare entrepreneurs, I'm starting to see cracks in the armor, opportunities. A lot of it created just by the, the popularization of the concept of accountable care. So that, I, you know, I got to give Obama credit. I hate to do it. Breaks my heart. But like, th we all now speak a language. I saw a sitting president of the United States talk about electronic medical record adoption and interoperability with, you know, a f I'm like, you're wrong about that. That wasn't exactly right. But anyway, there he was. He could say electronic medical record and he's the freaking president. So that, that is the beginning. And now I think the game is how do you find it? And it's how do you teach doctors to shop and profit from shopping? How do you teach consumers to shop and profit from shopping? And then how can we all enable that? How can we inject quickeners that make you see the morass as a, as a, as a choosable choice? So you're talking about competition to some respect. Yeah. And a pricing model. I mean, actual real prices. 
Well, actually, most of the early adopters have chosen convenience over price. Because, you know, we were all forced into these all-you-can-eat buffets, which will be pared back. You know, the salmon plate will be removed from the all-you-can-eat buffet here in the next four years, I think. Uh, you know, we'll still be able to get the, bro the, the boiled broccoli and the, you know, tuna casserole, but the other stuff we might have to pay for here. Um, and that image made me so grossed out that I forgot the uh, question. Something about, about tuna casserole. Something about salmon. No, competition and real prices. So what we, what we did, what we've been doing, a lot of us, is actually choosing convenience as our quickener instead of price. Because you can't really compete on price because if the consumer chooses the cheaper thing, they don't keep any of the money, right? So you either have to have a primary care doctor at risk who can keep some of the money by routing you, routing their patient to a cheaper place. That's starting to happen. We've got on AthenaNet now five venture capital-backed primary care slash women's health groups. That wasn't there a few years ago. That's pretty cool. And they're growing at, you know, the average medical group on Athena is growing 12% or 10%. These guys are growing at 30, 25, 30% a year, sucking in doctors who want to actually have some personal power, want to shop and make profit from shopping uh, for expensive stuff for their patients. So, but, but mostly it's been retail clinics, telemed, um, you know, wellness decision support. A lot of the early digital health companies were basically grabbing convenience and personal power and not price because of the constraint of the all-you-can-eat buffet. As deductibles spread, that, that, that changes. If, you know, and we're seeing now, if you look in AthenaNet, the average benefit plan of the whatever there are, 20 million people in AthenaNet, they're a lot more than 20 million people because there were 142 million visits. I don't know the number, but there's a lot more deductibles and the deductibles are a lot higher which means that the possibility for all of us to play in the price shopping as well as the convenience shopping or personal power or coolness spaces that we're using today as proxies for price is going gonna, is gonna to emerge, I think. So how does new innovation that could potentially drive certain segments, competition is great at having prices, maybe even more, but how does new innovation, I, you know, I, I always think of LASIK, Right, it's a, it's a, LASIK it's, is, I was in my book. LASIK is a great, go ahead, it's a great example. Well, no, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a new uh, technique, and now for a large segment of the population, they don't buy glasses. So glasses went to zero. So it drove the cost curve of glasses, right. or at least better vision, uh, that someone that needed certain types of glasses, to zero. Yep. So, so expand on that, but then how does the next thing, the next red pill, or yeah. the next... Uh, well, glass, LASIK is interesting because it was actually not included in almost any benefit plans up until Obamacare. So you actually had to buy it. So when we started Athena in 97, it was $2,400 an eye. For, and they like messed it up from time. Oh yeah, I'm so sorry. You know, <laughs> my eye. Second one free. You know, you right. And, and, today, and by the time my, my book came out, which was a few years ago, I went and called the same place and made some calls. And it was uh, like 200 bucks an eye and it came with a free shuttle bus ride. It's pre-Uber. Uh, because your eyes were dilated back to your house uh, or to and from uh, your house. Uh, so it had dropped tenfold the same procedure because they were trying to draw the glasses people out of third-party reimbursed glasses into LASIK-corrected eyes, right? That's a great example of the kind of thing we need to tease into the healthcare system to the degree that we can stomach a, a, a lowering of the safety net. So is that the model is a non-reimbursed uh, outside of the healthcare system uh, 
procedure that then invades its way in? Yeah, no, I think it's whether it's outside or inside, it's a layer of consumer preference, consumer price uh, that makes people... Uh, you know, e either on convenience, I mean, access is a big driver for the people. There's always going to be, for a long time here, a lot of people who are just fully covered. But there's going to be a growing number of people who actively want to be less covered and to make different choices about their health. They want to eat different, sleep different, just lump it and take aspirin. You know, th there are people, when, th when, they're, when you're making $30,000 a year and someone's making you pay 900 bucks a month, for your families, you know, you don't want that product. You actively want something else. You don't mind the inconvenience of not getting your ACL repaired. No one in Europe gets their ACL repaired. You know, no one. It's like unheard of here, unless you're like a famous World Cup soccer player or something. Here, like 80-year-olds who probably won't make the World Cup team are getting their ACLs repaired. So I think um, that, sh that, that consumer layer will help. But I think just doctors and risk contracts. Look, what, look at the change in the number of doctors and primary care groups and health systems that have some profit to be gained from shopping a little bit for what they do for their patients. That alone is a quickener of, hey, I'm going to try a, a, a virtual diagnostic tool instead, or you know, my next appointment's in three weeks, but I really want to grab this patient. Why don't I offer them a, a virtual visit or a, a bot uh, to follow up with them instead? If there's that deductible and you need to keep that consumer engaged with you, you're willing to make a trade to keep them that you weren't willing to make four years ago. So um, um, what you're talking about, I think, is, is really a complete change on how payments are making their way into the system. If you're talking about doctors actually thinking about prices and consumers thinking about prices, the, the, almost the word reimbursement has to disappear. Goes away. So, so this, is the, this could be the era for all of us. Think about what's the hardest two people to hire in your company, right? I'm assuming it's a great architect and a great product manager, like a technical product manager, right? Th those are the guys that we are like. Those are the ones when you get a great one, the thing blows along. And if you get a gr good one, it lumps along, right? There is no, as my cousin used to say, the problem with the French is there's no such thing in that language as entrepreneur, Okay, it's a joke, George. Uh, product management is not a thing in healthcare. All of the ingredients, you ever like look in an owner's manual and see all the parts like for your clutch and they have those blowout diagrams of all the different rings and discs? Can you imagine if someone showed up with like all the rings and dishes and said here? <laughs> like, that's but if you look at a claim, that's what it is. It's like, all right, here's a clutch. You know, here's an anesthetic. Here's the anesthesiologist for 13 minutes. You know, you actually buy that shit like that as opposed to buying a hip or a knee, you know, or whatever. Uh, and so so my thought is that as this emerges, as doctors start to shop, they themselves will demand not blowout diagrams and parts kits, but experiences for, for themselves to understand. We got a lot of primary care doctors who couldn't explain, most couldn't explain the details of a knee surgery, but they can start to demand that it get thought through and guaranteed by the orthopod that they choose. Right? Or by alternatives to the orthopod. Maybe I don't need to send this image out to uh, a radiology group that takes forever and has a 22% error rate when somebody took Watson and pushed it up or did a little AI project on plane films and they just skip it. You know? If you're fully at risk, you don't even need to send the claim. It doesn't matter whether you did a third-party reimbursed x-ray or not. It doesn't matter whether you used a doctor, if you could use a home worker or a virtual home worker. Once you have that risk, once you have that financial responsibility as the doctor, and you're going to own the outcome, you can start to expect 
other people to do the same thing. And I imagine that product management demand moves all the way up the healthcare supply chain. In the early years, it'll be in primary, you know, in the next few years, it'll be primary care related or frequent procedures, maybe mammograms and colonoscopies, things that lots of people get. And then as those get good, uh, you'll expect that to move up to fancy things. So um, Craig Simon was here earlier talking or sort of lamenting that he had 10 days left for the cancer moonshot in the White House. <laughs> yeah. um, and it seems like there's 10 days left for Obamacare as well, or 10 weeks, yeah, 10 yeah. months, whatever the number is. We may and, need to grow used to the difference between talk and action, though, yes. in the next few years. Okay, and maybe it'll take a, maybe it'll take a, a, a little longer, but it, there's going to be action. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, I don't know, I mean, believe me, and it doesn't matter if you told me, it wouldn't matter, but... Uh, I'm pretty sure what we're going to see is a great, huge, chest-thumping, you know, fire, uh, and what they're going to do is relatively incremental things. There are, there are three fundamentally actively wrong by any measure, either side of the aisle, things about Obamacare. One is the risk adjustment payment, right? You, if you actually succeed as a health plan, your first man mandate is to pay all the health plans who didn't succeed all of your revenue, or like as much as 25% of your revenue. That's that's messed up. Like, and everyone knows, it, I think everyone knows it's messed up and it's going to be revisited in 2018, but you could blow that up right now. The other is, you don't actually have to go get, you don't get fined if you don't buy the Obamacare and you don't, you are allowed to buy insurance after you're sick. Can you imagine if the federal government came in and said in the car market, you know, you're allowed to buy auto insurance after the car crash? Like, what? Sure, here, here's my fine. <laughs> Who cares? $12 fine and I just got a $50,000 car repair. Like, those are ridiculous and impossible things that are driving the cost of insurance through the roof. And the last thing is that provider, you know, rebasing providers who generate savings so that every time you generate savings, that's your new baseline to generate profit from savings. Even if you're the cheapest guy in town, you could be the cheapest guy in town and actually making no profit from savings. That's, in, that's some sort of weird Orwellian, you know, Ayn Rand bad dream come true. So they could repeal those things pretty quickly, almost as a rulemaking through price, pound their chest, maybe, maybe redefine the minimum coverage as you know, back to some sort of uh, you know, accident-only type coverage, declare victory, and it doesn't really change anything for us. Because we're already under Obamacare watching deductibles for employer-based plans uh, go right through. The we're all going to be at 5000 If you're employer-based and you're not in Silicon Valley, you're going to be at a $5,000 deductible in three years, I promise. You know, because it's just too expensive not to. So the difference between repeal and not repeal, practically, I think, is pretty small, and it's just about how much distance between the mean and the safety net there is. Today, there's virtually no distance. There's certainly going to be some distance. I doubt they're going to pull out the safety net altogether. So when the, uh, the to borrow the metaphor, when the uh, 3 a.m. phone call comes in saying, okay, we repealed it, now... Now what help. are we going to do? Now, okay. What was that Robert Redford movie becomes president? And he's like, oh, shit. Now what? Okay. Yeah. So, so now what? I, I, I mean, what is replace? And, and, and yeah. you don't have to get too wonky, but yeah. just conceptually and maybe with an eye towards things that will drive the cost yeah. curve to zero or at least bend it in that direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the uh, replace is uh, most of the like Price himself, I mean, most of the stuff he talks about is not new affirmative sort of mandates on people, but it's re removal of weird mandates that exist. So one element of replace could be 
the relaxation of the Stark anti-kickback law so that if I give you data, you're allowed to reimburse me for that. That's illegal now. That's considered a kickback, which is why there's no interoperation, because there's no market for interoperation. It's like, duh. You know, another example is interstate medicine certification, you know, licensure and credentialing. You're not allowed. There are no markets that are big enough to actually do subspecialty medicine with only people who can drive to your hospital. Like, they're just not, we've gotten too subspecialized. You actually need to virtualize and apply to a larger market, but you can't do the credentialing and licensing. That's just a dumbass thing that's easy to, I don't know if it's easy, but those are things that they could call replace that would quickly create market movement much greater than what we've seen so far in terms of actual adoption. I mean, the digital health movement has been great so far, but it's largely not adopted. You know, we're all getting going and we're raising money and we're, you know, demoing and we've got an alpha customer, we've got a meeting with partners, and, but then it's not actually in everyone's hands yet. So what we need to do is create that liquidity that pushes these good ideas through the adoption curve faster than, say, penicillin, which took 38 years after confirming its utility to where it was in regular use. Okay, uh, going to come to the audience in a second for questions, but um, he is talking a little slow, right? Should I ask him to speed up? Uh, is it too much? Um, one way to bend the cost curve to zero yep. is to keep patients healthy in the first place. Right. To avoid heart attacks, to avoid cancer, at least detect them at early stages. Yeah. Um, Vinod was talking a lot about... Or just about to avoid being a fatty. I mean, this country, like this room could change the world with, you know, walking around the block and eating a little more plant-based. But not but, you guys, obviously. But making that cool and sexy, I don't know, I see a lot of companies doing that. Um, Sorry, you didn't answer no, no, your question. That's, uh, I, I think that's an important part of this. But in, in all of our medical records are lots of information that can perhaps unlock our own future healthcare needs, yeah. and whether it's family or some patterns. And, and Vinod was here and he was talking about AI and machine learning. And machine learning is about looking for patterns and patterns of patterns. And yeah. it's how translation is done and how uh, Alexa uh, does, does voice recognition. So the question is, is, is that possible to do in healthcare and in records? And then secondly, what the hell's going on with healthcare records? They seem like they're in a write-only database. And yes, they suck. So yeah. how do you open that up? How do you right. make that accessible to the right. machines that that's a beautiful, others are going to fund? That's as close to an Athena like layout. Thank you. <laughs> well, one thing is if there was a national network where all the medical records were curated the same way on the same architecture, on the same platform that was sitting on an open API that any company with a cool machine learning idea could connect to, uh, that would go a lot faster than guys who have AI machine learning capabilities like Watson and they go have to go customer by customer and reset up shop and recharge consulting fees and recharge you know licensing fees to, to learn on a little tiny stack because the big thing about medicine that we always forget but that's the most important thing to remember is medicine is not a three trillion dollar market it's like a billion two dollar markets Right? It's, it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of small markets. There's a long tail problem, and every time we subspecialize a little further and get a little closer to the root cause of a disease, it gets even more small scale. So some way of pulling the baseline, getting some platform, and we aspire to be a, you know, one of those platforms where anybody can come in and attach and learn at an enormous scale uh, and then deploy that knowledge back in at an enormous scale. Uh, but we need that. And, you know, forcing everybody to interoperate according to some th think tank's idea of somebody who's a lady-in-waiting for secretary of HHS is not 
it is not ever going to work for either side of the aisle. Both, both sides of the aisle have tried various HIE, I, I don't remember them all now. There was CHINS in the 80s, the Community Health Information Networks, trying to create an integrated data set. But Athena somehow bumped into something that's tracking now 12% of all ambulatory medicine on one platform. And I, you know, I'm here to plug the shit out of that and invite you to come look at the More Disruption Please uh, API and, and, and demand what's missing, if it's missing, and connect to it. You know, the, the, even, I mean, there's a company, MIMO, in the room. They're doing shit that we do better than us. And I hate that. And they're doing it at our, one of our customers. It's awful. But it's better that they do that and we think big and imagine that there'll be some other revenue. Try not to pour Drano in their coffee when they come to the office. And, uh, and let that happen. And that is our intent, is, is to let anybody come in and do our shit better than us. Uh, to, to get that platform because that's where the machine learning will take off. Bezos like, is my hero. That idea of just saying, Don't, I'll let anybody, direct competitors, come onto this thing and use it to kill me, I, we've, I've got to do that. All of us at Athena, there's only 6,000 of us, but we all want to be relevant. And, and, and we're not going to make up enough little home-brewed products inside of Athena to be relevant. So there are network effects, is what you're saying. I do think so, and I think we finally, remember, what was it, Gladwell with the tipping point? Like, I'm feeling for the first time legit tipping point, where actually I could run into a doctor and they've heard of Athena Health. That never happened. 20 years, oh, is that the insurance company? No, no, it's Athena. It's a, and then I, you know, do my pitch. I mean, they're starting to know, and entrepreneurs are starting to know, and they're starting to show up. And the coolest thing happened last month for the first time, a a more disruption please marketplace company that had an unhappy customer actually fixed the customer's problem without us. They went back into our API, they found access to a data field that the doctor used to have to go into AthenaNet to get, to go back to their little app, and they basically just figured out how to pull it 90% of the time themselves, and the problem went away. And we didn't, have any, we didn't even know it happened until someone anecdotally told me on an airplane trip. That's the first time that's ever happened, where it starts to feel like it can go faster than our ability to even know what the opportunity is. Okay, audience questions. Um, is there a chat bot on Twitter that wants to ask one? Or um, you want me to ask more questions? Come on, someone. There we go. So thank you very much for your talk. Um, my name is Sebastian from UK. Louder and with sorry, rep, representing clearly share from the UK. Um, what's so? Your passion is uh, very palpable. Uh, what has taken you to that place? And related question, what is the role of uh, the kind of passion that you, that you show across the healthcare system? Well, I think it started with nothing to lose. <laughs> like, fuck it, let's just, you know, like, let's try it. There's nothing to lose. And now it's fear of failure. <laughs> like, you know, we, it's a, whatever it is, a billion three in revenue, and there's still no healthcare internet. I'm getting nervous. Uh, and so part of the, what you hear in that high-pitched whine is this, like, come on, you guys, build the freaking products, put them on the <laughs> marketplace, and get the old systems to die. I think now one of the, you know, we did get a major setback. One of the things that Obamacare, beautiful and Obama, beautiful as he is, and wonderful as a head of state as he was, is the High Tech Act did commoditize all healthcare IT. If you could somehow show that you could get the meaningful use data, you could get paid this money from the federal government, and I think it kept 
pre-internet companies alive, which are very hard to connect to. You know, if you guys connect, you get a customer that's on Epic or Cerner, it's great, but if you want the next customer, you gotta go do the entire connection all over again, which just fundamentally is too big a coefficient of drag. Even if you successfully do it, the cost of the sales and marketing and, and customer service division in your company exceeds the value of the little app that you built in the first place, and it kills the idea. So as those things start to die off, which I do now think, I, I think there's very low likelihood that Trump will fork over another $40 billion to keep pre-internet technologies alive and well. Um, and, and I think as those just die out of their own weight, this we'll get more companies pop and get exits and get IPOs, and that will draw in more energy. Uh, and the other thing is, is I, I think they will force consumers to pay more, which will make consumers more aggressive about, they will fire hospitals and doctors that you know, don't connect to their app or don't uh, give them digital information to shop with. And I think that will cause that, that Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. I really do in the next few years. It's weird, I, I'll, I'll hate giving, I, people will, Donald Trump will claim credit and I'll be so mad. But I do actually think it's gonna happen in the next four to eight years and it's gonna be partly because of his douchey self cutting back on all these programs. Um. I gotta digest that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a questioner right there. Question. One more question. It might be a little charged, but what do you actually see as the role of government in the healthcare industry? Just get out of the well, way. Well, obviously we're 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 we've gone way past the normal sort of prototypical original constitutional role of government, which is as a regulator, right? Um, so the government's in. They're a player. They're the biggest customer. Um, they're a major provider. Um, and so I think what we really need, despite the hyperbole that I sometimes leak into in my excitement and caffeination is, uh, you know, a, a, a thoughtful, uh, careful step back to allow a little more, if you shock the system in any direction, you know, all that research on mental health that traumatic stress can be from good news or bad news, people that, you know, there's a high suicide rate amongst people who win lotteries. So we're not, I don't believe in shocking the system, blow up Obamacare. If they could, if they want to say that, great, but if they just pulled back the deductible, allowed more kind of limited coverage, stemmed this weird risk adjustment mistake, like a few things to create a little more space. I believe the role of the government is to tip either in or out based gently based on the state of, of the market. And in, if, if, you know, if we've got the courage and the, the stamina and the sort of resiliency, tip out a little more to create a little more resilient, a little more anti-fragile energy in the market. But if it's weak and we're struggling, you have to tip in. Uh, and so right now, I think we're in a tip out phase, but not a blow it up kind of thing. But we were headed towards single payer. I mean, Obamacare was single payer in Sheep's called yeah, there, there were those who were like, the reason this absurdly badly designed risk adjustment was intentional to make the payers fail so that the, you know, it could make the cost so high that single payer looked cheap. I, I, I do not attribute that level of, you know, Dr. Evil brilliance to anybody involved with that. I, I, I hear that and I think that's... But as the pendulum swung the other way, I mean... Yeah, oh, for sure. That we got, we got all the way up the pendulum this way. You're not going to see as much vertical monopoly pricing, tracking with providers. You're not going to see as much. Uh, 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 you're going to see rates come down. Um, you're going to see, um, you know, lots of emotional stories about people who, by virtue of the coverage that they lost in the last four years, you know, have suffered. Um, but in general, you're going to see. Uh, I'm, I'm almost certain, uh, an explosion of technology, an explosion of. Uh, market energy and a decline in 
uh, in minimum cost. So any suggestions for entrepreneurs in yeah. the healthcare business? Because uh, Vinod right. didn't say this out loud, but for a lot of Silicon Valley, as soon as you say the word healthcare, the next word is no. Wah, wah. And then you hear yeah. the word reimbursements, and the answer is yeah. no. Wah, and you wah. hear, you know, medical yeah. device. So, yeah. you hear, don't sell to big systems. Don't sell to payers. Don't sell to anything that's bigger than you. So if you know, and that's one rule. Second rule, so first rule is try to stay outside of the third-party reimbursed system. If you can develop a product that deals with sex appeal, wellness, you know, health and beauty spend out of the pocket, as your, even if your goal is to smoke the whole established healthcare system, if you can stay outside of the third-party reimbursed place and get a, a monthly retainer, an Amazon Prime of mental health, uh, you know, what's that, a wellness warrior or whatever, recovery warrior, all these kind of blog with group services, to stay just outside of the wall. If you have to go inside the wall, go in, for, I, I know this obviously self-serving sounding, but go into AthenaNet and go get all the small groups. Like start with small practices, open the shit up on the marketplace, and, and get tracking with direct things that directly affect doctors' lives, you know, let doctors be doctors kind of energy, if, you, if, if your business model requires that. And then move up, then move up to the groups and the clinics and the IPAs, and then you can take on these freaking, you know, multi-billion dollar health systems who mean well and they're populated by great people, but they can accidentally crush whole zip codes by accident at lunch when they sit in the wrong chair. It's just, I've seen so many great companies and businesses get crushed while being loved by the big inside the system, third-party reimbursed, you know, megaliths, monoliths, big guys. So, so as this, this pendulum swings back and perhaps there's more innovation, because if you look in healthcare today, I, my sense is that care is better. Maybe it's more expensive and the reimbursement system is screwed up, but the, um, you know, um, you get a stent which you're overnight in the hospital instead of two weeks. It's laparoscopic surgery for gallbladder overnight rather than a few yeah. weeks. So as perhaps AI and other things are, are diagnosing things early, um, my question is why do you think that the same thing that happened with self-driving cars, which as soon as you saw one, everyone started worrying about 1.75 million truck drivers losing their jobs. So is the same thing well, uh, for better or for worse that's not one of the moving too fast is not one of the things I've come to fear in healthcare. Uh, <laughs> like I've seriously come to feel just hanging myself in frustration but not the idea of oh my god whoa what where did that go you know AI just had an AI heart you know replay a heart valve remodeling you know it was laser printed into my chest cavity nope not afraid of that. You know, there'll be some Israeli guy who show up and he's actually done it and it works. And 40 years later, they'll be the first one on a monkey. You know, so no, I, I don't fear that. I think it's going to be a much more gradual thing. And partly it's because we're cautious. Partly it's because we overregulate what we care about for, for all the best reasons. Uh, and partly it's because uh, it's a very powerful guild and you have to disrupt it from the outside in. And when you put a, licen a licensure layer around the wall, then the outside-in disruptors, remember, Uber had to actually break the law to disrupt the TLC, right? I mean, they, they broke the law, flouted it flat out, hired whatever Obama's campaign manager said, let's just do this, let's do it a lot really fast with a lot of money, and they won't be able to fight back in time. And they literally took on the freaking cities of America 
and, and very well-established guilds, but if they had not done that, I mean, that, 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 that's not gonna, somebody's not gonna do a moonshot, break all the laws of medicine breakthrough. I just, I'm not, I'm not seeing it. But even the gradual is enormously displaced. Yes. Uh, We're in for serious displacement. I mean, you know, ulcer, no one has ulcers anymore, and so the GI guys, sure. hopefully there's colonoscopies. But well, think of the change in search. 38% of hospital beds tonight that are staffed will be empty tonight. 38%, more than every one in, one in every three hospital beds. And another one in every three are absolutely by no modern definition of medicine appropriately being used. They should be out. You know, they should be in a nursing facility, or including, by the way, the second and fourth day of either a n vaginal or C-section. But, you know, nobody, ah, you can't do that. But clinically, of course you can. It's just that we didn't want to. So there's millions of, uh, billions of dollars of excess capacity that we're smoothing over with high rates that as doctors start to sh shop, th these big systems, I mean, I don't know if you've been watching, at the top of the thing they do these presentations, the big names that we've all come to know, and they're all harding it out to get 1% margins, 2% margins, and if you look inside, it's like based on 90% margins on radiology, which, by the way, we've all figured out you could do with AI half the time today. So it won't take much to knock over a lot of these guys. Now, they have unbelievable access to capital. Capital is largely free in our society today. You know, underwritten by the, uh, whatever, weirdness easing. Uh, so, but, but, but there's real fragility, particularly on the inpatient, where there's this enormous fixed cost related to things that are no longer clinically, or just less and less clinically applicable. And if you look inside of these things, the number of things that are actually making enough bank to cross-subsidize everything else, it's fewer and fewer and fewer. So the biodiversity of these guys' profit stream is going down and down and down. So I absolutely agree that there's a lot of fragility, but those hospitals can be flipped into nursing facilities and apartment complexes and other things, uh, and I doubt the current administration will bail them out, because I do imagine like all these, you know, nonprofit hospital executives going down and sitting in the very chairs that General Motors sat in, and be like, so wait a minute, you gave $30 billion to General Motors, and you won't give it to our nonprofit hospital? Right. You know, so, uh, I, anyway, I, I, I agree with your point, and it, it doesn't take a giant breakthrough of innovation. It takes one more twist of the screw on one or two business lines in some of these systems to cause a, a real need for restructuring. So last question. Um, you predicted, please agree or disagree, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that the cost curve is going to start to bend in the next four to eight years. Yep. Maybe not this administration will take credit, maybe they don't deserve it, who cares? The cost curve, more importantly, the cost curve is going to start to bend. So can you predict peak hospital beds, or has that already happened? I think we're past peak hospital beds. I actually think we're past peak hospital beds today. I mean, 38% of them are empty, so... <laughs> so in that, if that case, then the, the moonshot to head towards zero costs, we're well on our way. A lot of it is. Now, the problem is, at the end of all these procedures comes death. And we haven't been able to figure that one out. So we'll always be able to spend a lot more money figuring out another thing to do right up against death. And by the way, as long as that's something that we do with our imagination and our mojo as something that we 
you know, we, want, we, we can't take the money with us. If we want to spend it toying with death this way or that way, and it ends up being called healthcare expense, great. The biggest problem in healthcare is not how expensive it is, it's that for all that money, we don't get to trick it out and meet people we love with it and define our humanity with it. So to me, it isn't really about cheaper or more expensive, it's about embracing of the human condition or degrading of it. Uh, and I think th th the very fact of everyone in this room creating their own new base beat to, 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 to rock to uh, and to draw patients and doctors to, that is more important than making it cheaper. That expression of humanity is vastly more important, and that's why I love Startup Health. It is the source of all mojo in healthcare today. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.